0: Welcome this morning. Good to have you guys uh, here with us. My name is uh, Jason Tucker. I am uh, our director of adult groups here at Cross Creek Church. Uh, And I would ask you uh, as we uh, enter into this time together, I would ask you to grab your copy of God's Word, whether it be on your phone or your Bible. Uh, If you don't have one, there should be a pew Bible, which is ironic considering the fact that we don't have pews, but we've still got pew Bibles. Uh, They're just under man. If you guys didn't laugh at that, the next 20 minutes is going to be real uncomfortable. Because um, that's, that's how my sense of humor rolls. Uh, but wh- I will ask you to find Psalm chapter 19. That's uh, where we're going to be camping out for a little while together today. And as you're, as you're finding your way there to the 19th chapter of Psalms, I, I, I thought maybe I could try to recall a, um, a movie scene for us uh, that many of us have, have probably seen. Um, 2013, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio, Toby Maguire, the great Gadsby. Uh, if you remember, there's one uh, really uh, unique scene that stands out in, in all of that film. Um, Toby Maguire and his character Nick Carraway is, has gone to a party at Gadsby's house. Uh, And as he's walking in, there's all of the opulence, all of the extravagance uh, just going on everywhere. There's dancers, there's music, there's all this stuff going on. And as Tobey Maguire's character begins to walk in the house, a character whose face remains off camera begins to walk with him. And they begin talking. Uh, Now, nobody knows what Gatsby looks like. Caraway doesn't know what Gatsby looks like. And as, as they're walking and as they're talking, the conversation between Toby Maguire's character and this faceless character turns to Gatsby. And they begin talking about who he is and what he must be like and the mystery uh, that surrounds him and in dramatic fashion. At some point during this conversation, the unseen character uh, begins to turn, the camera pans to him and he says these words. Uh, I'm afraid I haven't been a very good host, old sport. You see, I am Gadsby. And the camera pans around and we get this, this image with the fireworks going off behind him, the, the glass of champagne raised, and at that moment the mother of all memes is born. I'm sure, if you, even if you haven't seen the movie, even if you've never read the book, you've seen this image somewhere of Gadsby's great reveal Psalm 19 this morning, in a sense, in a way, is God's great reveal. God's revelation of himself, who he is to us as his people. You see, as, as Christians, we stand in a long line of orthodox, historical, Christian Belief, And I know, you know, sometimes when you pair words like orthodox and historical together, people's eyes start to glaze over. But stick with me, this matters. We stand in a long line of orthodox, historical, believing Christians that have advocated, that have professed this doctrine of revelation. In other words, we follow a God who chooses on purpose to make himself known to us as his people. One who chooses to make himself known and accessible. And in most of the world's religions, if you think about it, seekers have to try and find their deity. They have to seek after. They have to go on some quest for secret knowledge, like it's some cosmic game of hide and seek. And if you're part of a very dedicated, super studious, special inner circle, you know what I mean? then you can have access to that secret knowledge too. And if we think about it, for some of us, we kind of approach Christianity that way. That God is hidden, except for a special few. That God is distant, he's disinterested. Maybe he's intimately involved in the lives of others. But you just can't help but somewhere deep down inside, thinking that, the all-knowing God of the universe, has forgotten about you. Listen, theology drives life. Theology, what we believe, drives our practical living out and how we live our day-to-day lives. And, and, and that's a beautiful thing until you consider the fact that bad theology drives life just as much as good theology does. So what we believe that scripture teaches us is important. So the scriptural, historical, orthodox belief of, of the doctrine of revelation is important. And it matters in how we live our lives. Theology drives life. Maybe you feel lonely or abandoned. Maybe with all that's going on in the world right now, you feel afraid, overwhelmed, and hopeless. Maybe Thanksgiving with your people was somewhat less than you had hoped for. Dear bruised, broken, disappointed, confused, sometimes. Fearful Christians, hear this. Your God is a God who delights in revealing who he is To his people, this doctrine of revelation, and it's not cold, hard, academic, ivory tower theology. It's warm, pastoral comfort to God's people. As the church historically has talked about this doctrine of revelation, they've talked about it in a couple of different ways. Uh, We've talked about it in the category of general revelation. Natural revelation, how God has revealed himself in the natural order of things. And we've talked about it in the category of special revelation. Uh, Scripture, how God reveals himself through the divinely inspired words of scripture. And it's this doctrine of revelation that David, as the psalmist here in Psalm 19 today, is drawing our attention to. Now, typically, this is the point where we would read the entire text and then we'd pray and we'd go in. We're going to do a little bit differently today. I'm going to read parts of the passage as we go through, uh, as I'm preaching through the passage. So uh, we'll pause for a moment, if you will. Uh, I will pray for you because you have to listen to me. If you will return the favor and pray for me as I stand before you this morning and attempt to draw our attention to the word. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you this morning for your inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. God, we recognize that you are a God who wants your people to know you. So we pray that you would send your spirit among us during this time together and that you would achieve the purposes for which you sent your word for us to know you and be convinced of your love to a greater degree. Father, bless this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So three thoughts for us, three reflections that David draws out from Psalm 19 this morning. First one, David's going to give us a a brief reflection on general revelation. Then secondarily, he's going to go and give us a reflection on special revelation. And thirdly or finally, we'll have a, a reflection on his response to revelation. So first main point, a reflection on general or natural revelation. Three things David's going to contemplate here together. The first one is this. God's revelation of himself in the natural world is clear. It's clear. Look at verse 1. David says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Did, did you notice the verbs that were being used in that passage there? The heavens declare the glory of God. From from the Latin, to make clear. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims, meaning to report or inform, to to proclaim his handiwork. Speech is poured out like water from an overflowing pitcher. Uh, Knowledge is revealed. There's a clarity in God's revelation of himself, even in the natural world. I don't know if you've ever sat in an open field at night and just stared up at the stars. Wednesday night, the kids and I drove down to southwest Marengo County where I grew up. And uh, we were sitting there hanging out with my parents and my sister and my brother. And uh, at some point, I just thought, you know, the stars in rural Alabama look different than the stars in Hoover. Or at least there's more of them. So I actually did the whole dad thing. I got the kids up. I made them go out in the backyard. And we stared up into the sky you can see the Milky Way from there. I don't know if you've ever done that. Or maybe you've gone out on a beach and you've just stared out at the waves. Or maybe you've gazed at the Rockies and you've tried to take in the depths. Maybe you've just gazed over the Grand Canyon and kind of lost your balance a little bit at the grandeur of it all. And you just knew that in the midst of all of that, All of that grandeur and all of that glory and all of that power, you just knew that God was there. That's on purpose. That's what it's there for. John Calvin in his commentary on this passage says that David introduces the heavens as witnesses and preachers of God's glory. The heavens are preachers of God's glory. As long as the heavens exist, as long as the sun and the moon and the stars hang in the sky, there's a clear, unmistakable, ongoing proclamation being broadcast to the cosmos. God is here. We are not alone. Not only is God's revelation in nature clear, it's constant as well. The knowledge of his presence just keeps on coming. You know, I drew our attention to all of those verbs. Uh, uh, I kind of told a little bit of white lie. Uh, Those aren't really verbs. Those are participles. And if you're a little bit of a middle school language nerd like I am, you you know that participles carry with it this idea of ongoing action. It's, It's not just that these things happen at one time. It's not just that the heavens at one time declare the glory of God. It's not just that the sky at one time proclaimed His handiwork. It's ongoing. It never stops. It happens repeatedly over and over. Verse 2 says the testimony of God is continually poured out like a well drilled down to a spring, and it just constantly bubbles over. David says day after day, night after night, God is pouring out this knowledge Of Himself. Every morning the sun comes up, and there's brand new evidence of God's presence and His love and His warmth and His affection for us. G.K. Chesterton uh, uses this illustration, um, and it's, it's a couple of paragraphs, so it's lengthy, but just listen to Chesterton's words as he's describing this concept of God's ongoing pouring out of Himself. Chesterton says, the sun rises every morning. I do not rise every morning. But the variation is due not to my activity, but to my inaction. To put the matter in a popular phrase, it might be true that the sun rises regularly simply because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to a lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children when they find some game or some joke that they especially enjoy. A child kicks their legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of energy. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They say, Do it again. And the grown up person does it again until they're nearly dead. For grown up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, Do it again to the sun. And that every morning and every evening, Do it again. To the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately. He's simply never gotten tired of making them. It may be that He has an eternal appetite for infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be mere recurrence. It may be theatrical encore. God's revelation of himself to us in the simple natural order of the world is clear. You can't miss it. You can't misunderstand it. It's it's constant. It keeps on coming. Thirdly here, it's universal. Verses 3 and 4 says there's no speech. There are no words. Nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. Now, there are no actual words spoken in general revelation. But the testimony is deafening. There's a reason why you can go into far-flung tribes in the middle of nowhere that have never had outside contact with anyone, and you will find them worshiping something. Why? Why? Because God's revelation, in general revelation, is clear that there's something worth worshipping. And it's universal. If if I say this name that I'm about to say, you're automatically going to know who I'm talking about. Alexander Shannara. Why does everybody in this room know who Alexander Shinara is and that he's an attorney? Because he's everywhere. Like every second or third billboard around town all the way between here and the beach is an Alexander Shannara billboard. It's unavoidable. It's universal. The unbelieving atheist says, I would believe if only there was proof. The hurting Christian says, I I would rejoice if I could just be convinced of God's presence. David's responding here saying that in general revelation in observing the natural order of things God is clearly constantly universally making himself known to us day after day, night after night saying to us I'm here I'm good I long to have a relationship with you the doctrine of general revelation is a constant pouring out of God's grace secondly here David goes into a reflection on special revelation, God's word, the scriptures that we have. Verses 7 through 9, we see David meditating on six unique aspects of the scriptures, God's special revelation of himself to his people. And in each one of these six facets, David's going to use a synonym. He's going to tell us what it is, and then he's going to tell us what it does. Verse 7. David says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. God's word is perfect. It's without error. It's impossible of being in error. And David says it revives the soul. I don't know if you've ever experienced moments of coldness towards God. Maybe you're holier than I am. Maybe you've experienced moments where you just feel far From God, Uh, Listen, here's what scripture says. The only cure for coldness in our hearts towards the word of the Lord, the only cure for that is the word of the Lord. And some of us hear that and we automatically want to have a knee-jerk reaction and cry, Legalism! Can't tell me what to do! Listen, it's no more legalistic to encourage a weary Christian to partake of God's word than it is to encourage somebody dying of thirst to partake of water. If we feel distant from God, then why would we not run after the primary way that God's chosen to make himself known? The special revelation of God alone revives the soul. Secondly, second part of verse 7. It says that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God's word is sure, it's firm, it's confirmed, it's stable. And what does it do? It makes wise the simple. Thank God. How else do you think I can stand here and point to God's word? Because God's word makes wise the simple. Think about all of the disciples, all of the people that walked around with Jesus. As we read through the New Testament, I think we get this... I don't know, false idea that Jesus walked around with a group of scholars. These were just blue-collar guys. I mean, I guarantee you, there was, there was more Dickies and Carhartt in their closet than there was Lulu Lemon and Ralph Lauren. Uh, these were just blue-collar guys walking around, hanging out. Think about this. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. If the police roll up on you and your friends and they try to arrest your friend and your first thought is to pull out a knife and cut somebody's ear off that's probably not your first time like these were just blue collar regular normal everyday guys and you and I sit here today worlds and generations apart Following the precepts of the Lord, not because of theologians and ivory towers, but because the word of the Lord makes wise the simple. And he uses us to spread the gospel. Thirdly, here, verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. God revealing himself to us in Scripture brings joy to our hearts. I don't know about you, but with all this going on in the world right now, between the elections and terrorism and war and just the general nastiness going on in public, CNN has not helped my soul this week. Fox News has not warmed my heart at all. Facebook and Twitter have not led me to joy. Do you know what has brought joy? The precepts of the Lord. The prophet Isaiah, we've read this several weeks ago in chapter 55, verses 2 through 3. This is what he says. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. The special revelation of the word of God is right and it brings joy to the heart. Fourthly, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I love that famous quote by C.S. Lewis where he says that, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the Son has written. Not simply because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Psalm 119, 105 tells us that the word of the Lord is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The word of God allows us to begin more and more to see the God who created the world. And not only do we see the world he created, but we see he who created the world. It enlightens our eyes. Fifthly, the fear or the reverence would be another word that we could put in there. The, the fear or the reverence of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. No other book other than the Bible has been more torn apart, criticized, analyzed, and been proven to be true. I mean, think about it. Nobody questions Homer. Nobody questions the efficacy of the Iliad. Ah, we don't really think that's true. Nobody questions Homer, yet the truth remains. Even though it's been overanalyzed and ripped apart and thought through, truth remains it endures forever. Lastly here, the rules of the Lord are true. Verses 9 then 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. For, for many of us, it comes down to a choice between the word of God and the drippings of the honeycomb. And if you're anything like me, too often... We treasure the things that add sweetness to life. We're far too easily satisfied with lesser things. How hard do you work for your paycheck? How many hours do we spend pursuing entertainment? I'm going to try not to think about the number of hours I spent watching football yesterday. I'd have to repent in the middle of the sermon. Uh, Television, internet, Pinterest, Sports, social media. I I heard John Piper say one time, I I try not to quote John Piper too often, it's convicting, Um, but I, I heard him say one time that one of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook is going to be to prove on that last day that our lack of time spent in prayer and in God's word was not for a lack of time. No one's saying don't work hard. No one's saying we can't enjoy entertainment. No one's saying that we can't follow our friends on social media or kick back with a ball game or watch Netflix from time to time. But God, I mean, God gives us rest on purpose. He gives us a whole day to be able to recharge and to contemplate Him and to sing together with one another. But let's remember where a true rest comes from God's special revelation is to be more desired than gold. So, what does this look like? for us personally maybe this looks like committing to read through scripture together in the coming weeks you're going to hear of our bible reading plan coming up for next year maybe it looks like starting again because here's what I know about us as people we've tried this we quit doing it then we felt guilty and our guilt and our shame kept us away from God Hear the grace of the Lord. Start again. Repent. Believe the gospel. Start again. What does this look like for us as families? Parents? Holy cow. Okay. Parents, our children learn to be worshipers by watching their parents worship. Our children's view of the word of the Lord is likely going to closely resemble that of their parents. Now we can go three directions with this direction number one we can say you know what I think I'm doing a pretty good job of that and it can lead us to pride and arrogance and we can pat ourselves on the back and we think we're pulling this parenting thing off and we don't really need God's help to do it second place it can lead us is oh man I've failed again miserably at this and that shame can keep us away from the Lord and we never open the Bible again in front of our children Here's the third place that it can lead us. Repentance, confession, and an application of the gospel. Because we don't have to lower the bar to such a low degree that we can achieve it and then lead us into a false pride. Nor do we need to accurately view the high bar of God's law and just assume we'll never get there. We should accurately view the high bar. It should accurately lead to a place of desperation, but we're not le- intended to be left at the point of desperation. That's the whole point that why Jesus came. It's an application of the gospel. So individually with our families and then within our church as a whole, there's a reason why we preach the way we preach. There's a reason why we simply go to the text And we highlight the text. There's a reason why in our youth ministry, in our children's ministry, why those are word-focused times of teaching. Because that's the whole point, is the word of the Lord. So here's what David has done for us so far. He's given us a reflection on general revelation. He's given us a reflection on special revelation. In the few moments we have remaining, David's going to share kind of a reflection and response in verses 11 through 14. And in this reflection, we're going to see David saying that God's revelation of himself does three things. Verse 11, God's revelation to us warns us. He says, Moreover, by them, in other words, by the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments of the Lord, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is a great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. How will we know error? How will we know what's harmful unless we're shown by God? Secondly, God's revelation of himself protects us by teaching us what's right. It it restrains us. Verse 13 says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Holiness is not achieved through willpower. Holiness is not achieved through willpower alone. For much of our lives, many of us have tried to get it right by trying harder. I just got a simple question How's that working for you? Simply trying harder. You cannot achieve intimacy with the Lord by trying to circumvent the way that he's created for us to have intimacy with him. There is no such thing as a gospel-less intimacy with the Father. It has to be through the Son and through the Son only, which is where this last point leads. God's revelation of himself points us to our need for Jesus. Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There's only one way that we're made acceptable in God's sight. That's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is our rock and our redeemer. Jesus, the ultimate revelation of God. What we're going to be celebrating in the coming weeks together as we travel through this season of Advent. I'm going to close with um, a poorly written parable. I can call it that because I kind of came up with it. But so, so you're going to get the point at the end, but it's, it's not as well thought out and as well written as I wanted it to be. It's, it's a story of two sons, essentially. Son A was born to a father who did not want him. The father abandoned his son, and the son was left to make his way alone in the world. And some of us resonate with that son. Because that's how we live. Son B was born and lost to his father as well. And this son, too, lived his life feeling abandoned and alone and lost. But what if I told you that your father did not give you away? What if I told you that you were taken from your father by evil? And that from that very day, your father who loves you dearly has been constantly bombarding the galaxy with messages of his existence, messages of his love, messages of his desire to come, to rescue you, to restore the relationship that was lost, declaring you are not alone. You're not abandoned. I'm here and I love you and I want you to know and love me. And he longs for us to know of this love to such an extreme degree that he writes it in the sky. He writes it in the heavens through general revelation. He creates the sun and the moon and the stars and he hangs them all there as a constant reminder of who he is and his affection towards us. You want to experience the love of the Father? Go outside this afternoon. Face the sun, close your eyes, lift your arms out to the side. I know your neighbors are going to think that that you're nuts, but, you know, here's a hint. They probably think that already. So just forget your neighbors, go outside, close your eyes, face the sun, lift your arms, and feel the warm embrace of your Father. That's what it's there for. He longs for us to know of his love to such an extreme degree that he wrote it in the heavens. What does it do to know that you have a father that wouldn't just move heaven and earth for you? I mean, some of us have dads that we're convinced. We know our fathers would move heaven and earth for us. What does it do to know you have a father who created the heavens and the earth? For you. For me. He longs for us to know of his love to such an extreme degree that he writes it all down in a love story. Some of you, um, maybe maybe you're old enough to have mementos written in old school pen and ink from back when you were dating. And every now and then you take out those letters and you reread them and your heart is rewarmed. Maybe for some of you who are younger, you, I don't know what we do. I guess we scroll through text messages uh, you know, uh, from those who we have, we, we have affection for. And we relive those moments of, of revelation of love towards us. Well, he longs for us to know of his love to such an extreme, extreme degree that he writes an entire book. And he gives it to us so that we can open it up and flip through the pages whenever we want to like a bride receiving her, a letter from her beloved. He longs for us to know of his love for us to such an extreme degree that he himself, the creator God of the universe, wraps himself in human flesh. In the ultimate revelation of who he is, as Emmanuel, not God over there, but God with us so that we would know of our ultimate value to him. And he pours out his blood to pay for our failures so that we might be rescued and redeemed from the evil that has stolen us. What would a knowledge of that kind of father do to our own sense of worth and value? God has revealed himself to us not so that we could simply have an academic academic ivory tower knowledge, of this, But as Paul says in Ephesians 3, so that we may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Pray with me. Father, we do pray that these words of yours would go forth and achieve their intended consequence, that because of our time together, we would leave this place being more convinced of your affection towards us, of your grace and mercy shown towards us, and that we would live, not as orphans, but that we would live as sons and daughters of a father who has great affection for us as a children. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.